This is going to be madness. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. This is a very special... Oh, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcast partner, Pillar co-founder, Ed Conan, who is like... This was Ed's idea, and look how uh, red he is turning right now. He, I don't think Ed knew that when he had the idea we were going to do it. Uh, I'm your host and Pillar Editor Chief J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. And this is a very special episode of the Pillar Podcast because this is... Um, Ed, what is this? What are we... What is this? This is this is a really great Wednesday night. Um, this is a great Wednesday night. At, what is this at a bar called... Um, this is a, at a, a wonderful, incredibly hospitable, understanding, welcoming <laughs> establishment that I cannot praise highly enough for immediately practical and possibly future legal reasons. And I would just <laughs> like to say they are wonderful, wonderful people at Skinner's Pub and Eatery at like 919 Randolph Street or something. 919 Randolph Street in St. Paul. What he didn't say is the city. We're doing a live show from St. Paul, Minnesota, which is near Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is the um, superior of the two. But I'm given to understand it's the superior of the two. But and we're not. at this, Ed and I are at this bar, and there are like, I don't know, 10 people here? How many people are here, do you think? How many people are here? There, are, there, there are, are probably 100 people here. There are there, somewhere between 10 and 100. There, I think. there are significantly more than the 10 people I booked space yeah, for. There are people here at this bar, and they're hanging out, and they're having drinks, and we're gonna uh, we're doing a show, and we're gonna talk to these people in a little while, and invite them to play some games and have some fun, and we'll have prizes. Oh, we have prizes! I have shirts. I think I left them in the car, but I will get them, and uh, and and we're gonna do that. But first, um, we're here because we were in the Midwest uh, for an event, and uh, we decided to. Come to St. Paul after that to make this show. Is that right? That is entirely correct. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm simultaneously living a dream and a nightmare right now. It's very, it's very different. Why, I not, why do you find, why are you unnerved? I am unnerved, first of all, because there are lots of people here and they're looking at us, which is not normal. Normally I do this in the privacy of four walls. I no usually don't me. have pants on when we make this show. That is, that is also true. I'd like to thank you for wearing trousers today. That was <laughs> generous of you. But also, I honestly didn't think anyone was going to come. I didn't think I, anyone was going to come either. So we, I think we said on the show last week that we are going to make this live show. And Ed called, said that he called the bar, although we got a frantic email. So yesterday I put in the newsletter of the pillar that we were going to do this live show here. And then we got a frantic email from the bar saying, like, please call us right away. We've never heard of you or your event. And I was surprised because Ed said that he called the bar. Well, um, I did. But what I did was ascertain that it was a small venue and there was no private room I could book. <laughs> and that was sufficient. It answered the questions I had. Okay. It, it in no way deterred me from my... Do, I wanted to go to a small, yeah, I know, but what nice I wanted you to do, dive bar. What I wanted um, you to do was call the bar and set up that we were going to come to the bar and have them say, like, yes, we welcome you, we love you, this is normal, you're allowed to do this, and instead you, did, you basically just called and asked if they were open. What in our entire history of a relationship <laughs> led you to believe I would do anything other than the bare minimum of human contact that I did? I did. Uh, Good enough. Okay. What was I supposed to do? Call a bar and say, and hi, say, we're injured, we're... Hi. We're going to make a, we'd like to make a podcast we'd like in your to come beer, to garden, beer garden and make a religiously and themed podcast and we promise that won't be controversial in public. And we will we also bring a totally indeterminate number of people that I can't yeah, right. guarantee. We can't tell you, there may be no one, there may be 100 people as there, as there are. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what we want to talk about actually is this, Ed, and it's really, really cool that we're here and I think it's great and I've got a double Jameson and you've got an empty glass and... Um, <laughs> I think it's your second empty glass, actually, and we're three minutes into the show. Possibly third. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, but what we want to talk about is actually very um, sad. Hey, everybody. Uh, 
you have probably just been listening to a little bit of our live uh, show, which we recorded this Wednesday in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, parts of the live show worked and parts of them didn't. And one of the parts that didn't work was sort of the substantive conversation element of the show. So it is now Friday, August the 5th, and Ed and I are going to have uh, a little bit of a substantive conversation, which we will then insert back into um, our best of the live show episode. Uh, so with that said, Ed, the thing that we're going to talk about, which we talked about on Wednesday and we're going to talk about again now, is um, a death, the death of a pontiff uh, of a sort. Um, because we have been hearing this week from readers and listeners to this show who have been asking us to talk about the death of a, um, I, I don't want to say anti-pope, I mean anti-pope feels strong, doesn't it? Don't, don't you think pseudo-pope is probably better? Um, well, technically, I suppose. Well, I mean, look, I, this is... I feel like this is a good question to ask at the end of this conversation because okay. I, I feel like there are there are reasons that you might apply both, and I think I probably come down on one side pretty clearly here. But I I, I feel like we need to get there on the road. So we're going to talk about anti pope or pseudo pope. But before we do that, just tell the people who um, I suppose do not know what we're talking about what it is that we're. So we are discussing the death of quote unquote Pope Michael who uh, died on, I guess, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening. And quote-unquote Pope Michael was the leader of a, a strange um, sect, I think is probably the best, most appropriate word to, to apply to them, a, a sort of estranged schismatic Catholic sect in Kansas. And he was elected in a quote-unquote conclave in uh, remind me the year i am struggling here he he was elected in a quote unquote conclave in um 1990 1990 and so there i mean this this group of um as i say schismatic catholics the origin of their schism is that they were sedevacantists they don't recognize the election of any pope uh, after and including john the 23rd if i'm correct and anyway they had it in their mind that the the continued, as they saw it, vacancy of the See of Peter was intolerable and the the faithful remnant, as they saw it, needed to gather and um, and choose a choose a new pope. And so this this conclave met in I think his parents' farm in Kansas, and they they had expected schismatics from around the world, I guess, to gather like a sort of, um, a, a sort of city of Acantist burning man festival was what they were hoping for. <laughs> well, and, not quite. No, can I, can I, uh, can I make a little, uh, distinction that I think would be important sure. to them? So, um, so, so yes. So, um, David Bodden and his parents were traditionalist Catholics for a lot, for a while they were sort of in your mainstream of traditionalist Catholics. They were, uh, followers of the Society of St. Pius X, which is a traditionalist Catholic association, which the church says is an imperfect communion with the church, which sort of had a breakaway from the church, um, you know, in the, uh, I think, starting after the Second Vatican Council, but becoming more formal in the early 1980s. At, at a certain point, David Bodden was a seminarian for the Society of Pius X, and the Society of Pius X is not set of vacantists. So at that time, he believed that the, he believed in the validity of the Pope. He believed that at that time, John Paul II was the Pope. They just don't feel like they have to obey him very much. But they became not set of vacantists, but conclavists, which is an even sort of smaller subset of people who feel not just 
sort of mainstream set of vacantists, if you will, the C is vacant. People who believe the C of Peter is vacant believe that they have they're enduring a sort of period of persecution and suffering for the church that is marked by the the vacant C. Conclavists believe that they have a moral obligation as kind of the faithful remnant of the church, the true church, um, to get together, not to endure this thing of the vacancy, but to solve it by coming together as, as a sort of um, representative of the people of God um, in, in exile, as it were, um, to elect a new, a new bishop of Rome. Right. I think they would bristle if we called them something. I, w- I wouldn't want to ruffle their feathers, um, <laughs> all three of them. And so, yeah, they, they tried to have this conclave in Kansas, as I said, they were, they were anticipating a kind of, you know, uh, ultra Lefevreist Woodstock, and what? Yeah, they took out ads in magazines. They wrote letters to sort of traditionalist and independent priests. They did everything they could because they they wanted hundreds of people. I think they were preparing for people to camp. They wanted to have a uh, hundreds of people to show up. That's what they thought was going to happen. But what did happen? They they did all this. This is what they were expecting, but no one turned up. Um, no one at all. And so they ended up having a conclave that was basically David Bowden is his proper surname, I believe. B-A-W-D-E-N. It sounds like an English name to me, so you pronounce it. David Bowden um, attended this conclave with his parents. Uh, I think four or five of their immediate sort of community in their their part of Kansas. And I think a a dog was present. And and they, they quote unquote elected young David to be the new pope. And as I understand it, the reason the the Holy Spirit moved them to choose him was he was basically the only unmarried male present. And so it was kind of more a process of elimination rather than a, uh, his, his shining qualities uh, that clearly marked him out for the, the papacy, so to speak. And I have always been fascinated by the phenomena of Pope Michael because he he lived and, uh, and until his death on Tuesday, he lived in his mother's house. Uh, he didn't live in her basement. That would be an unfair caricature. He actually lived in her attic. And that was his apostolic palace. He would, on a, on a website that looked like it was made sometime in 1991, um, he would occasionally release, uh, I, don't, I think encyclicals might be overblowing it, but he would release... Uh, it also, t- I suspect, would be a relatively modern term in his view. Possibly, you know, I yes. think he would prefer sort of bulls. bulls. Yes, he would, right, he would yeah. issue bulls from, um, from Topeka, Kansas. And... Uh, I mean, the it's a fascinating character study because if you ever see, and I certainly have, um, sort of YouTube documentaries or the occasional sort of, you know, this weird life interview with Pope Michael, he's, he's a fascinating character to watch because he clearly um, demonstrates, I think, a, a, a sincere belief in, in what he held himself out to be he really thought he was the pope um and on the other hand i it was hard you know he had this sort of whenever i saw him on film or anything like that he always had this sort of air of quiet sadness and resignation about him which suggested he was also aware that he was perhaps a a figure of ridicule really and that you know what little what little chance he had to spread the gospel as he saw it was pretty much you know people coming to look at this weird guy in a Kansas cornfield who thought he was the Pope. And and I, I, I always, it was always a, whenever I saw, I guess pathos, JD, that was what I felt right. whenever I yeah. saw him. Was, you, you, you felt for the guy and you, 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 because there's a sincerity there. There was a real sincerity there. And I mean, God rest him. I, I sincerely hope his, his schism, notwithstanding, um, that he will be welcomed into heaven. And I, and I have every confidence he will, because 
you know, God has a sense of humor. And if you can't, if you can't see the funny side of this, of Pope Michael, then I, you know, what's the point of being Catholic? I mean, could you imagine, I would like to think that our Lord, you know, on Tuesday afternoon, just nipped down to the gatehouse uh, at the pearly gates and had a word with St. Peter and said, look, this, this guy, David's going to come up here and just whatever he says, go with it. Just Just give it to him. Just roll with it. it. It'll be worth it. Just, just let him, let it ride. It'll be fun. I was thinking about that maxim that a, a, a couple, a, a number of Dominicans I know use, probably others too, um, where, uh, you know, someone sort of asks, um, you know, will my dog be in heaven? And, and there's a sort of standard pastoral answer to say, um, no, uh, if, if that, <laughs> that would probably be a more systematic answer, but there's a, there's a standard sort of pastoral answer to say, you know, if you need your dog in heaven to be happy, your dog will be there. If you need your dog in heaven implied, to be happy, you have yet to fully with, appreciate with the, implied the beatific presumption vision. that you don't understand what the, be- with the implied presumption that the beatific vision is all satisfactory, all satisfying, um, and, and eternal beatitude is all satisfying the, the, you know, that's sort of the, the sort of unspoken part. But the, the reason I was thinking about it is because I think, um, and that, that's a way I think of answering a question, which is, which is true and also gives the person an opportunity to sort of grow into the answer. And I was thinking, you know, I hope that someone told, um, Pope Michael, you know, if you need to be the Supreme Pontiff in heaven to be happy, um, you will be, which is, which is indeed true. The conditional is, uh, is a big one, but it, it is indeed true. I, I think, um, this is a figure who I think sincerely believed the thing that he believed. And, um, and I, like you think that the Lord probably has a special place in his heart for such persons. All papal lives matter, JD. (laughs) The question that we have been asked is, uh, is, uh, of course, because people have not asked us, do you think Pope Michael is in heaven? Because they're very interested in our spiritual takes. The people that, that, the, the question that we have been asked is, was he really, um, ordained? Was he really a priest? Was he really a bishop? Was he was he play acting at this, or was it was it real? Um, and uh, and so we did a little bit of looking into this, Ed. And what did we? Uh, because you know, I think what people are wondering is, can you become a bishop uh, or a, pri- a priest for that matter outside of the communion of the church? I mean, clearly this guy is outside of the communion of the church. Can we know that? You know, obviously, if you're ordained by the bishop of your diocese, first a deacon and then a priest. You, you know, you, the, the orders, all thing, all other things being equal, are, are valid. We also hold that the orders of the Orthodox Church are valid. That the that Orthodox bishops exercise not only sort of legitimate governance administratively, but also have the power of bishops to make priests. Um, they have legitimate apostolic. They have legitimate apostolic. Right, and so the question that we've been asked is: Okay, but outside of those confines of what we would call churches, quad churches, the communion of what we'd call churches, quad churches whether it's the Orthodox, Orthodox churches or, or the Catholic church, um, could this man be a priest or a bishop? How does that work? Right. And the, the simple answer is, yeah, of course you can, unfortunately. I mean, it is, you know, the sacraments are to, uh, at a very basic level, ex opere operato. And what is established at the, at the um, theological and canonical minimal level for validity is matter and form. And if you do it, you do it. And you can you can do it badly, you can do it uh, inappropriately, you can do it in all kinds of bad ways, and we have a lot of canon law for exactly those circumstances. But in the same way that a quote unquote laicized priest can still validly confect the Eucharist and should not, um, or in extremis, well he can um, in extremis hear confessions validly. You know, if someone is in danger of death, uh, you don't lose the power to ordain 
just because you are a bishop who's gone into schism. I mean, this is why you have heretical churches. If if it was impossible to confer validly sacred orders uh, while being in a state of schism, then most heresies would just die on the right, right, die right. out fairly quickly. Uh, unfortunately, many of them continue, and you get schismatic and heretical churches that that grow up and tend to endure for a very long but, time. Or if because not, apostolic... churches qua churches with jurisdiction and authority, like. Um, Her, right. heretical and because i want to speak precisely because i think there are people people are probably fitting notes. okay sorry yeah. schismatic ecclesiastical community yeah right like um christian communities with valid orders perduring without the sort of consent of the church right, right. and i mean you, again would that this were not the case but it is the case because so important is the theological reality of what happens at priestly ordination and episcopal consecration that you are made capable of doing a thing of the supernatural order and you know that is a that is a mark indelibly confirmed. Yeah, you can't un you can't unbishop someone. You can you can lose the dignity of the clerical state, but you you can't undo an ontological change. It's not that you can make priests or bishops by virtue of an office. Authority doesn't derive you know or, or sacramental capacity doesn't derive from the office. The ability to do it sort of licitly in accord with the communion of the church is connected to office, but um, 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 but and jurisdiction, but sacramental capacity does not derive for, from office, nor does it derive from sort of mission. It derives from condition, uh, the condition of a person and, and orders confers certain powers, uh, among which are this, the fullness of orders, the sacred episcopate, confers certain powers, among which are the ability to make priests and, and make bishops. You in, in the Latin, we say that one becomes capax to do, right. capable of doing certain things at the point of ordination, but one becomes habiles that is qualified to do them right. by virtue of office or mission or whatever else. But you don't lose the capability just because you lose the qualification. So um, was Pope Michael a bishop is, is easier in a certain way than is Trump married? Um, because, um, because oh, much easier. Yeah, it's a much sort of easier question. But I think the question, you know, so so that's we the haven't sort of answered it yet. Principle, by the way, right? So the question is: Was he ordained a bishop, a priest, and bishop by someone who had the 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 capacity to ordain? And uh, so we did a lot of a little bit of looking. And um, uh, Pope Michael was ordained in 2011, both a priest and a bishop. What's really interesting about that is that he remember he was. Um, elected at his so-called conclave in 1990 um uh, but he didn't possess the 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 you know in our theology like um he, he could not have been the pope until he was a priest and bishop um and uh because the the the, the pope the successor of saint peter is the bishop of rome um and so he sort of like was waiting in sort of suspensive effect for more than two decades before um, a bishop from Texas who was part of a schismatic um, apostolic succession community or line uh, came to Kansas and ordained him a deacon, a priest, and, and, and a bishop. Um, that bishop from Texas has his own interesting story, and that interesting story starts in Brazil in the 1940s um, when a bishop named Carlos Duarte Costa began to develop a whole lot of ideas that were um, not especially popular in the life of the church, um, he, he, he started speaking strongly against clerical celibacy, which is a discipline, not a matter of doctrine, but he started speaking strongly against clerical celibacy. He started speaking strongly against sort of clericalism, clerical privilege. He believed that priests should like, not only should they marry, but they should work regular jobs and have, you know, sort of live in, not in the rectory, but just like, you know, have a house church effectively and, and work a job. But he also sort of believed that the church should perform you know, second marriages for folks who were divorced without benefit of a declaration of nullity. And he, he grew kind of to have other sort of lax 
beliefs. He was extremely critical of the, the rosary as a devotion. Uh, he, he was just a guy who was kind of moving uh, in that direction. And in 1945, he was excommunicated um, by Pius XII. Uh, but what he did, he, he, he said actually his excommunication was one of the happiest days of his life. And what he did was to dub himself the Archbishop of Rio de Janeiro and to start ordaining priests and bishops in this, uh, this sort of new movement that he called the Independent Brazilian Catholic Apostolic Church. Um, and uh, by the time he died, he had ordained 37 um, bishops and 50 priests. And those bishops kind of went, and they were validly ordained bishops, and they kind of went all over the map. Some of them went you know, even further to the left than Duarte Costa. Some of them, though, um, after the Second Vatican Council, sort of were consecrating people who became very conservative. And so like this Duarte Costa line of Episcopal ordination goes in like a hundred directions. It was kind of a, an ecclesiology of let a, let a thousand schisms bloom. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. And so this bishop in Texas kind of, he was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained by Duarte Costa. So he kind Which of... is what we call valid, if extremely illicit apostolic succession. Now, here's the thing, Ed, about all of this that I find most interesting. I'm glad you brought up confession, right? Because... Um, Confession. When a priest is ordained, he he has the uh, the um, capacity to forgive sins, right? To to uh, to to confer absolution, the forgiveness of sins um, in the sacraments yes. of penance. Um, but the Church makes a rule. The Church, which has the authority to regulate the sacraments, makes a rule which says that under ordinary circumstances, except for danger of death, a priest cannot validly confect the sacraments or confect an absolution unless he has faculties from his bishop or another bishop or a religious superior in certain circumstances, he needs, mm-hmm. he needs an administrative sort of, there's an administrative check on his sacramental capacity. Um, and there are, you know, reasons for that. There are people who criticize that and say, well, that's sort of modern positivism, but there are lots of people who say, no, that's good governance. Um, but the fact of the matter is the church says, we are making a rule that says that this is a check on your valid exercise of, um, of, uh, of, of sacramental absolution, that you can't do it if you're you, um, without this faculty. The church does not make that same, so she claims that authority for herself to set invalidating conditions on the sacraments. She doesn't do it in the same way for ordination. That's weird, isn't it? It's weird, but it, it also makes sense. I mean, the, the sacrament of penance as we have it now with individual confession and absolution isn't something that was present in, for example, the apostolic church. That The practice we have largely grew out of Irish monasticism. Um, you know, we have the, the rite of penitence, the, 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 the sacramental absolution of the sinner and the reincorporation of them into the church definitely goes back to apostolic times. But the, the way in which the sacrament is celebrated is something that has always been uh, highly developed and regulated by the church as a matter of ecclesiastical law. Um, but on the other hand, ordination and consecration have always been there. The laying on of hands is there from the Acts of the Apostles. It is like an or sacrament, if you like. You know, baptism, the Eucharist, and the laying on of hands are, are, are always there. And it also is a function of the Episcopal office. That it is a, you know, the ability to be a bishop, the powers of a bishop are, I think, very highly exalted in the church that you know the college of bishops the 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 reality of a bishop as a successor to the apostles in their own right that they don't have the same link to for example the bishop of rome although there is this you know the college of bishops exists uh together with its head and only ever with its head the bishop of rome 
Um, but the, the, the link amongst the bishops is primarily fraternal, whereas between a priest and a bishop, it is hierarchical as well. There's a hierarchy of orders there. And, you know, the, the church's theology of what a bishop is invests the office, the reality of Episcopal consecration with so much dignity that it's, I think, a lot harder and a lot more serious for the church to say it's going to start putting limitations on how that um, power is exercised and, you know, what, how you would limit that and, and what nature of sacramental authority you would have to exercise or create or rearticulate to make that happen, I think, is a very different thing. Again, would that they would, because we've had some serious messes in the church and not in the dim and distant past, but very much in the last 50 years that could easily have been avoided if there was the function in as a matter of ecclesiastical authority to just turn the sacramental taps off on a bishop that goes rogue. <sighs> I am not 100% certain that I agree with you about the historical argument. I, I, I certainly agree with you that the sort of modern form of individual and integrated confessions is, is develops out of Irish monasticism, to be sure. I, I certainly agree with you about that. Um, but I'm not sure that I would say that there was a way in which penance and absolution was not always there in the same way that... It was always the there, but isn't it, isn't it like confirmation in the sense that it's more often linked to the bishop than That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. But that's is what that, I'm saying. Oh, is okay. a priest... The, the, the relationship to a priest to the to the sacrament of penance primarily runs through the bishop. Right. It's it's a sacrament it's that linked. in the church, in, in our theology, is, because a bishop has the faculty to absolve everywhere unless a particular diocese, diocesan bishop has mm -hmm. limited it only for lyceity. So mm -hmm. you could say if you're, if you're a bishop, you could say if you're a neighboring bishop, he cannot licitly hear confessions here. But, but by virtue of his orders, he possesses the faculty to absolve all, always and everywhere. Um, right, but the fullness of the sacramental priesthood resides in the office of bishop. Right, exactly. And so, like, the ministry of the priest as a minister of penance is, I think, an associative ministry to the ministry of the bishop. In the same way that when a priest confers the, the sacrament of confirmation, it is basically associ associative through association, right. admittedly a much more explicit and direct association on a case-by-case -case basis with confirmation, but it's the same kind of thing. That could be, um, you know, the, the stable celebration of office for a pastor who receives a person to the church— or it could be sort of association in a particular case, or it could be delegation to go and do a confirmation. There are any number of ways in which that can happen, but it's, there is an, it is an associative thing where, where confirmation sort of belongs properly to the bishop. And penance is also linked to episcopacy in a way that, that through which presbyteral absolu you know, absolution by a priest is associative to the bishop. So, so that, I think, is, is key, right? Why... Um, uh, so, okay, so I guess what we're saying is um, the church feels like she can regulate penance in that way for priests. She doesn't regulate penance in that way for bishops. So it's not so much about the sacrament of orders or something like that. It's about the church being relatively sparing, the universal law of the church being relatively sparing on the regulation of the sacramental ministry of bishops. And th that's a sort of theological reality to recognize, again, the bishop as sort of... Um, himself as a vicar of Christ in his diocese for a diocesan bishop, but possessing the, 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 a succession to the apostles for all bishops. Yeah, I, I mean, it is true that the church is very sparing in, in the way in which it regulates at the level of validity the, the sacramental ministry of bishops. I also think it's... I, to what extent and how the church would assert authority in that area in a more restrictive way, I'm not sure what the, what the ecclesiological or theological basis for that assertion would be. So in other words, could, could she? Do it. You're saying yeah, it's not I, quite clear how she would say she could. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying you can't. 
I'm just saying it's not clear to me how. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't either, but I'm not quite 100% saying you can. I mean, can the Roman pontiff put invalidating conditions on the sacramental ministry of bishops? Probably, question Yes, mark. but the... But the but this is why I'm always talking, this is why I'm always saying that so much of what the church is still doing is unpacking Vatican I. Because Vatican I is a council that intends to sort of explicate more concretely many things about the Petrine office, the office of the Roman pontiff. And maybe everyone who's listening feels like they know the answer to this much more concretely than I do. But I think it's a sort of place where the best we can say is, uh, I, if he did, if the Roman pontiff did... Um, establish a universal law which said that bishops can't um, validly um, ordain absent um, some sort of license or faculty. See, it just get. I don't, I just don't. It, it gets very complicated. I mean, but this yeah. is, the, you know, I was teaching a class at a seminary earlier um, in the spring and I was teaching a class on special marriage cases. Petrine privilege, Pauline privilege, the dissolution of the bond, privilege of the faith, stuff Con like that. Rather consummatum. Stuff like that. And um, I, I forget the exact hypothetical that someone came up with in class and asked about it. And I said, okay, it's not that there's a rule written down somewhere that says the Pope couldn't do that. No Pope has ever done it. And almost every canon lawyer I know is terrified that one might try one day because we're not quite sure what that would mean. Well, it's so it's, it's one of those boxes we have just decided canonically and theologically not to open. Yeah, because I, no one's entirely sure what would come out if we did. I I, I certainly don't think there's a magisterial. I, I I don't know. Again, I don't know because I don't feel like I'm an expert on the documents of the First Vatican Council. But I I certainly don't think if you're a listener and you think otherwise. But I certainly don't think that there's a definitive sort of magisterial determination on this, which puts it in the realm of, uh, of speculative theology. And there's no sort of legal tradition which um, by which we could say, well, this is the perennial practice of the church or something like that, beyond the fact that... Well, we've had a lot of bishops who've been excommunicated in the history of the church, some, some rightly and right. some wrongly. And, you know, we've had consequences from those excommunications and consequences from what we've from what comes from bishops living outside of community in the church, in some cases, defiantly so. So, I mean, there is there is a perennial practice around to what extent can the church limit the the sacramental capability of a bishop once he's out of communion with the church. And the perennial practice seems to be there's not much the church can do other than admonish and warn and apply ecclesiastical penalties for doing it. But in terms of preventing the validity of it, it, it does seem to be the perennial practice of the church that there's that, that that's again in and this is what i was telling the seminarians in that class is the church hasn't said the pope can't but we can say no pope has ever tried no, well now here's something that i don't know very much about but i think you might know something about um in a, a sort of um fly in the ointment here is uh, is um, a, um apostolic a cure which I guess is probably Leo the Thirteenth and the invalidity of Anglican orders. Why? What? What is utterly the argument? Utterly null and totally void. Yeah, but what? It, I, I know what I know what the Church says, which is that Anglican orders are utterly null and totally void. But what is the argument that apostolic succession did not perdure in the in the? Um, well, well, it's not an argument. Actually, it's a declaration. But what is it? It is a declaration. I I would want to defer to. Um, someone in an ordinariate with a degree in canon law who could perhaps better explain that particular thing. My understanding has been 
um, Leo was saying quite clearly that the quote unquote Anglican church is no church at all. It is an ecclesiastical community. It lacks jurisdiction. It lacks governance. It lacks a legitimate hierarchy and all of those things. But it's also been my understanding, and I I know or I've met in my um, previous years, I have met Anglican ministers who've gone out of their way to sort of ensure that they have a line of apostolic right, succession right, in right. their ordination that they can trace. From and this old is not Catholics, true. from old German, Ger- German, yeah, old, the old, Utrecht old line and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's, it's my understanding that the majority of Anglican orders on the principle of apostolic succession can be said to be um, invalid. But I think must I be. I think that's what apostolic curia binds is to say. Well, I do. Must I, be. Well, I don't know. I mean, was he was he speaking rhetorically? I don't know. No, I think uh. it's absolutely true that I, I think it's absolutely true that the church says that um, the right of ordination in the in the from an Anglican bishop does does not confer a sacrament, nor does an Anglican. Well, bishop but then possess. there's a question of intent. Is another thing, JD. I mean, there there is a question of in the course of um, intervening centuries. Is it possible that what we've done is made a determination that what is what is being done in Anglican ordination does not conform to the mind of the church and what ordination is? I mean, this is one of the things, is the sacraments, you have to want to be doing the sacrament. You can't accidentally right, confect right, right. the Eucharist. Right, you have to sure. have intention. And I wonder if the decision there and what was being um, you know, pro- definitively proclaimed there is what the Anglicans think they're doing in priestly ordination is not what the church intends in priestly ordination, and therefore they are null and void. In the same way that Mormons have a quote-unquote baptism sure. that looks a lot like Christian baptism, but actually when you unpack the theology and the church has ruled on this, it says, no, this is not, this is not baptism. Okay, I think i It might I'm, look like it. It might walk like a duck. It might quack like a duck, but it's not a duck. I think I'm pulling up some notes here, and it looks like, yes, intention and form. Leo says that... Um, there's a defect of intention and fo- of form and intention, rather. In, so in it's Anglican not apostolic order. succession that they lack; it's form and intention. N- well, it's now apostolic succession that they lack. Also, many, uh, many. But again, I know I know guys who made sure that when they were no, being but if ordained, you're ordained from another Anglican. thing. That's a totally different question. But those, uh, no, we wouldn't call those Anglican orders. If you will get ordained by an by a German old a member of a German old Catholic sect, we would not say. That's your Anglican no, ordination. In, that's extra. Well, that's, look, we, I'm not disappearing down a rabbit hole of how some <laughs> particularly crazy Anglicans um, like to try and make sure that they have what they see to be valid apostolic lines of succession in their ordination. That, that's a, that's a, that's a talk for a different show. We're we're in the danger of recording an entire new we show. We are. What's, well, I will say this. You know, I think um, uh, I think that um, in recent years the Holy See has said, or at least people in the Holy See, Cardinal Coco Palmario among them, have said like. Well, you know, it's not true that it is true that Anglican orders are invalid, but it's not true that that doesn't mean by that fact that the Lord that that there's not grace in um, in the desire for ordination. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like the Lord can be present, it's, but just not the thing of the sacrament they, is a different thing, right? Well, the church doesn't the, the church doesn't say, and Leo the Thirteenth didn't say there was no Christ to right, be the found Lord does in not the Christianity. Show, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's right. On the contrary, that's right. But there's a difference. I can I can say this, and I love being able to say it, but it's true. Some of my best friends are Anglicans, and and I know I I know um, I I know a a former um, Anglican cleric who says that you know he does not believe that his Anglican order that his the right of ordination in his Anglican life uh, confected a sacrament because the Church says that it didn't, but um, he he does believe effectively that it was a movement of the Holy Spirit in his heart and that. There was it can be a moment of personal grace, and, by right, all of course, means. Yeah, I mean, you right. are offering yourself with sincerity to the service of the Lord. That is not 
that's not something that the Holy Spirit spurns just because it isn't sacramentally, you, the sacramental ordination doesn't follow. And that gets us back to Pope Michael. Um, because here is a guy, how about that? Because here is a guy who I think, and you think too, was indeed in his life offering himself sincerely to the service of the Lord. And, uh, and so, yes, in a technical sense, I think we can call him an anti-pope because that is... Um, he was an anti-pope. He was a validly consecrated valid bishop consecrated who bishop. set himself up as a rival to the true holder of the I think I like period. calling him a pseudo-pope just as a matter of charity because I want to recognize his intention, I, his intention here. Although I suspect, can I Sure. Can I meet you halfway? Yeah. Can I extend an olive branch? I would have said prior to his reception of valid Episcopal consecration, when he was just a, a layman claiming to be the valid, I would have called him then a pseudo-pope. Fair enough. But the moment he became a, a validly consecrated bishop, setting himself up as a rival to the true bishop of Rome, he became an anti-pope. I'll take that. Now, one other question, then we're going to be done with Pope Michael, and we're going to get back to our live show. Um Imagine that rather than, um, uh, I, I presume, insofar as I know, um, Pope Michael died in the condition of, uh, in which he lived as a claimant to the, to the See of Peter. Um, but imagine that at some point in his life he had experienced a conversion and decided to reconcile with the church, um, which, which um, is co constituted on earth through her hierarchical communion, the visible bonds of communion. So he had decided to reconcile with the church. Um, and uh, so he called up um, his local bishop. I think he lived in the Archdiocese of Kansas City, if I, if I have this correctly. He called up his local bishop and he said, uh, Hi, um, this is David Bodden, a.k.a. Um, Pope Michael. I'm a bishop um, in your diocese, a hello brother bishop, and I would like to reconcile with the church. Um, and uh, the Archbishop of Kansas City said, Sure. Um, Ed, what would have been the thing, uh, you know, we'll go through RCA, every, all are welcome, you know, what would have been the thing that would have prevented him from exercising Episcopal ministry? What would have been the, the status of his Episcopal ministry in the context of the communion of the Church? Uh, well, I mean, of course, he can come back into the communion of the Church. I'd argue all he has to do to come back into the communion of the Church is to go to confession. Yeah, well, of course. But, I mean, I would take issue with your case study there just because, for a start, the, the relevant Metropolitan Archbishop or Bishop in whatever diocese he's in should not in any way have thought himself competent or capable to handle that case, it should have gone to the CDF, because what you're dealing with is a bishop in schism attempting to reconcile with Rome. And so the first thing he has to do is make his peace with the See of Rome, with whom he has breached communion. And yeah, so my sure let's just like a sure let's get the ball rolling. I wasn't saying come on down to the cathedral and we'll work this out. I was, it was a let's get the ball okay. rolling. Yeah, no, it's got to go to Rome. But, um, but the, the schism the, is key, because schism is what? Is a reserved delict. Uh, and also, um, with regard to the exercise of his orders, what's the important part? Oh, it's incapacitating. It's an irregularity, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it renders you extremely irregular for the licit exercise of so, orders. So it, until that were... The Holy See would have to dispense him from the irregularity of schism before he could exercise his orders licitly. I suspect what they would do instead is... I'm just saying, would, what would they have to do? Let's do what would they have right. to do, and then what would they They do? would have to do something for him to be able to, in any way, assume any kind of public ministry... As a priest or a bishop, they would I have suspect what they... to dispense him from the irregularity. I just want to think about what they'd have okay. to do. to dispense him from the irregularity, and then to remit the penalty that he incurred for the delict of probably the delict of heresy and apostasy. Uh, excuse well, me, heresy and schism, not apostasy. The reception of um, sacred ordination and um, without demissorial letters in the first place is also a delict. is also a delict. Is it also an irregularity? I don't know if it. An yeah, I know it makes you irregular for the exercise, the, the, the exercise of orders. So yeah, it makes you if you. If you're if someone ordains you bishop on a barge in the Mississippi, um, 
and says, you know, congratulations, you're a priest now. You you are a regular for the exercise of orders because you were ordained without demissorial letters and without being incarnated into a diocese and without, you know, for all the reasons why you can't be consecrated a bishop without, um, you know, the the appointment, the bull of appointment from Rome, you can't be ordained a priest without a bishop who says, yes, you are going to be incorporated. Yeah, I just wanted to break diocese. down the irregularities. In, insofar as I can tell, well, there as, are I, many. as I look at the 1040s, insofar as I can tell, the, regu- the, the relevant irregularities are the delict of heresy, which it, it impedes you from the illicit exercise of orders, the delict, delict of schism, um, the delict of um, placing an... Uh, no, there's a, an irregularity that comes from placing an act of orders reserved to those in the order of episcopate or presbyterate while lacking the order, which I don't think that he did insofar as I know, or prohibited from its exercise for some declared or imposed canonical penalty. And the very weird thing about Pope Michael and the death of, of, of penal law in the life of the church right now is I don't think anyone ever declared a penalty against him. So no, that not. irregularity does not impact him, right? So then we can no. go to. Um, but here's the thing: he was he was a an anti pope for, um, what I mean, not from the point at which he was consecrated, so 2011. So for more than 10 years, and no one ever declared a penalty against him. It's amazing. No one ever declared it. But here's the thing: I bet you he also incurred the delict for illicit ordination and consecration. Um, I'm just looking at irregularities right now. Okay. Um, but. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at, I'm not looking at all the irregularities that he, or all the delicts he may have committed. I'm just thinking about irregularities right now. So, um, received orders illegitimately while affected by an irregularity to receive them is another irregularity. So that's basically committing a crime with the intent to commit crime. I think he gets that one. Um, there are a bunch. You are right about that. But another one, possibly, <laughs> it is an irregularity to be um, ordained uh, while you are affected by amencia. Uh, Ed, what is amencia? That means you're nuts, J.D. Do you think that they would try to call that one on him? I don't think you can. It lacks, again, having having seen many interviews with Pope Michael, he, he visibly and manifestly is not amencia in the mind of the church and what, what amencia is in the law of the church. Like that's, amencia is not, there's something a little off about the guy. Amencia is you are like. Yeah, you're not in your right mind. You're, you're not, you're not you're responsible. You're incapable of functioning right, exactly. in the world. Yeah, I don't think they could use that one. No, they couldn't. Okay, they absolutely. Then couldn't. I think we've got it. The irregularities would be, effectively, heresy, apostasy, and schism, and then again, exercising ministry while after having been ordained while, um, under an irregularity. The de- there would be other delicts, including illicit ordination or consecration. You love that. I, I love it that we're at 40 minutes and it's now the time where we're doing so shall we play that's a game? That's fine. This the, is going to be a long show. That's totally fine. My other question very is, long show. What, what I th- find very amusing is we had to record a 20-minute drop into this largely because you were so enthusiastic about Pope Michael while we were in the bar. <laughs> you just talked for 40 minutes about but Pope Michael and talk. now we're, we're doing it again. We're talking. The problem was... No, we're talking, yeah. but I, So again, what do you think, just, last thing before we go back to our live show, what do you think Rome would do? Uh, I think Rome would would welcome the the repentant son back into the fold, but they would also um, immediately dispense him from the clerical state yeah. and and all the obligations and rights thereof and make it absolutely clear he was not to attempt or in any way hold himself out for public ministry or administering of the sacraments. That's right. They would instruct him to live, uh, I would say, in a, in a life of quiet prayer. I think they would discourage him from um, uh, uh, making the conversion story circuit, don't you? Yes. It, no, he would be, he, I, they would give him a life of prayer and penance. Yeah, I think that's right. Ironically, they'd probably send him to a religious house somewhere in a cornfield <laughs> in Kansas. So very little would change for Pope oh, Michael other than the color man. of what he was wearing. But 
Um, I, I think that's what would happen. God bless him. Well, let's uh, Ed, let's pray for the soul of, of uh, Pope Michael. Don't you think we ought to? Well, we certainly will. I I love how into Pope Michael you are. Like, I feel like we need a standalone Pope Michael show, but we've now kind of had to. I'll be honest. If there is a conclave in Kansas, I'm probably going to go. Oh, I want you to go. Yeah. If there's a conclave in Kansas, you have to go. This would be That would be an incredible story. But for right now, let's uh, get back to Minnesota, shall we? Do let's. Okay. I don't know who you are, but you are not having it, and I think that's hilarious. <laughs> What's your name? Did she say Elsa? Yes. Hi. Nice to meet you. Well, okay, so there's a lady named Elsa here, and she's drinking a gin and tonic, I think, and she, like, we were talking about this irregular orders thing, and she was just like, I can't believe I came to this, which I think a lot of people were thinking, but Elsa wears her emotions on her face, and so... Uh, we knew that Elsa was wondering what the hell she was doing here and why. I think, I think what happened is her priest was like, I know you don't listen to podcasts, but these guys are really interesting. You should come to this. And now she's, like, she's texting him furtively, like, what the hell did you make me go to? What? Okay, now I'm learning. You can't hear this if you're home, and maybe you're wondering, what am I listening to? But uh, a priest just told me that this lady who doesn't like us is big on Catholic Twitter. <laughs> what is your internet name on social that. Time Lord with a with a, like Time the Spice. Yes. Oh, I think I have. Yeah. Okay. So if you're interested in this lady who's obviously cooler than us, at or hashtag I don't know TimeLord.com. But the L is a capital I. But the L is a capital I. Time Eord, which is interesting. She didn't want people to know that. Elsa, we're gonna cut all this out probably. Maybe. Um, yes, we are. Who else? See, this is what's. There's another guy that's having a good time. Everyone here... Everyone here... A lot of people here are kind of pseudo-listening, but this guy is really... Like, this guy's so zeroed in on us that I'm a little afraid he's an assassin. And now I'm almost certain. What's your name? Jason Adkins. This guy's name's Jason Adkins. I actually know this guy. And uh, it's good to see you. And uh, he's... Yeah, that's why I know him. Of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, which, by the way, in my opinion, and I'm just saying this, is probably the best of the Catholic Conferences in Minnesota. Well, they certainly um, have the award-winningest podcast. Yeah, the Minnesota Catholic Conference won an award this year because they... Uh, and they made a podcast that was very it. serious and on topic and didn't ramble for hours, they, picking fights with the people listening to it, and delivering long excursions on schismatic popes. They made a podcast uh, in which they interviewed Ed. They, di- they didn't They ask- also did that, which was nice of them. They I- didn't ask me, so I uh, I don't know. But um, but they made a podcast interviewing Ed, and that and that podcast won an award. And Jason Adkins, like, come on over here, because I think you're super interesting, and I want you to be on our show now. By the way, there's all these dioceses of St. Paul Minneapolis people. Ed, give me your microphone for a minute. So, Jason Atkins, you're the executive director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Indeed. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you, too. What's the good word? <laughs> I'm not prepared for this interview. Just trying to do what we can, do some good at the margins. Yeah, that's right. So, one of the things that I think is very interesting about the Minnesota Catholic Conference is that you guys seem to be very engaged, like, with the people of God of Minnesota, and, like, you really have a good presence online. You seem to have a good communication strategy. I've seen your, like, Catholics at the Capitol stuff, and your materials are very good, like... What is the basic sort of strategy behind your work? Well, if we forget that the work is ultimately about evangelization and ultimately about Jesus Christ, we're not doing it right. Yeah. So even the work of politics is ultimately about evangelization. So we kind of see ourselves like Charles de Foucault, a new saint who, you know, was sort of a proto-evangelist. He was tilling the soil in North Africa 
for that first wave of missionaries to come. So what we want to do is, when we go to the Capitol, we want to proclaim those truths that ultimately serve human dignity and the common good, propose policies consistent with that, but also we want to present a credible witness for the church. So when people have those moments in which they encounter that deep existential crisis of our time, that the Catholic Church is a credible place for them to call home. And so if we're not doing that, if that's not always the thing that guides us in everything we do, we're not doing it right. And then particularly with the communications and the outreach things that you mentioned, we're ultimately in the good news business. We have to go out to people and reach them, and we have to find engaging ways of developing content, connecting with people, and then ultimately helping the church and the laity live their call, their baptismal call, to faithful citizenship. Um, the moral authority of the bishops these days at the Capitol only goes so far. So if they're not. I don't understand. What do you mean? People don't think that bishops are moral authorities. In well, their they lives? they do, but what do you uh, mean, Jason Atkins? Well, there are limit. It's there's a little. There's some challenges out like, there. Like why would people think that bishops' moral authority is compromised? I, I don't know. You can use your imagination, JD. But uh, the the reality is is that the voice of the lay faithful has to amplify the voice of the bishops in the public square. And so we're calling people to live that baptismal call to faithful citizenship, and then not just calling them into that, but equipping them to do so effectively. Wow. What are some things that you guys are working on right now? Uh, two things. You know, especially in a post-Dobbs world, we have to be supporting family economic security. We have to make it easier for people to get married, stay married, have kids, uh, help them flourish, and then care for elderly and young people at the both beginning and end of life. That's a cornerstone public policy uh, uh, goal of ours, and especially that makes sense in a post-Dobbs world. If women can get a child tax credit, um, if they're considering abortion, knowing that there's going to be an economic motive assistance uh, when that child does come, that might help them choose life. So we got to be thinking creatively about public policies that accomplish those goals. The second thing is calling people into the vocation of public service. We can lament the state of things in the public square, or we can do something about it. And it's not so much state legislative races, congressional races. You know, that local school board race that you're ignoring might be more important than a congressional I race. I totally agree with you following. about that because you can make so much more of a di like pe local politicians have control of so much like money and policy yeah. and graft. The, the civics education gap is huge, and we have to help people understand where they can make a difference in their corner of the vineyard. Yeah. And uh, we have moral agency and we have political agency in our corner of the vineyard, but we have to step forward and be willing to sacrifice those Wednesday nights going to the school board meeting the city council meeting, running for mayor. Here in Minnesota, in many rural communities, they can't find enough people to run for city council seats, town board seats, et cetera, et cetera. We know how important school board issues are these days. So thinking about using the parish as a way of calling people into that vocation of public service and engaging them more effectively in that. So those are kind of the things that we're working on right now. Cool. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. I honestly, at first, I honestly thought you were an assassin. I didn't, but I'd also like to thank him for saying the most coherent thing said on this episode yet. That's true. Another person who's here, right here, is another friend of ours named Maria Weering. Maria, what? Okay, so we're just talking to people now. Give it up for Maria Weering. First, give it up for Jason Adkins. This guy is down there lobbying for you, Minnesotans. And if you're listening to the show and you're not from Minnesota, well, this is what we're doing now. Maria Weering, what is your deal? I'm the editor of the Catholic Spirit, which is a newspaper for the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Who re raise your, make some noise if you listen to the Catholic Spirit. I mean, read the, you know. So, um, okay, so one thing that I would ask you is this. You have a good diocesan newspaper. I actually read the Catholic Spirit. I know a lot about things that are happening in parishes in Minnesota. A lot of people um, these days are kind of critical of diocesan papers. They're like, well, no one actually reads diocesan papers. No one cares about them because diocesan papers are owned by bishops. They're not really 
being able to tell an objective reality, these kinds of things, you know, it's just like the Pravda of the diocese or whatever. But sure. why is a diocesan paper actually awesome? Because it's the community newspaper for the archdiocese or for a diocese. So it is telling the story of the diocese and brings people together through those stories. So in the here in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, I think one of the key key roles that the Catholic Spirit has played for the last few years is that we've had an Archdiocesan Synod going on. And so yeah. Archbishop Hebda is fabulous about using the, Arch, the using the Catholic Spirit as a way to communicate to his flock. And, and that's meant to be, the, the whole Synod process is meant to be something that brings together the Catholic Church locally in a, in a way of obviously listening and, but also moving our, our church forward. And so, like, our coverage, no one else is covering that. The, yeah, the right. Star Tribune is right. not covering that. The Pioneer yeah. Press is not covering that. We're, we're a newspaper town, they but we are covering be, those right? things. I mean, well, yeah, for sure. a lot of people in for the, sure. of the church. Well, because it's going to be shaping the future of the local church, right? Yeah, totally. And so I think that for people who want to understand their local church and who want to um, understand their place in it, they need to be following local Catholic news, and the Catholic newspaper is historically best positioned to do that. But do you, but. It is true that there's a limit to what a, Catholic, a diocesan Catholic newspaper can do. That, like you, you do, you are published by the diocese. You the archbishop is our publisher. Yeah, the archbishop is your publisher. You're there for, um, but that I, I, I don't know. I don't know that that necessarily means that the things that you report about are not accurate or true or useful. Or the things that I find most interesting are like, I, I just find profiles of people doing interesting things or like stories about people doing like the actual work of the life of a parish to be really interesting and important stuff. I think so too. I mean, we amplify the voices that may not normally be amplified um, in in the public sphere, public sphere in that way. And we, yeah, we bring stories of faithful Catholics living out their faith. Like we talk about our, ourselves as something that is is giving the stories of people who are living out their Catholic faith in 2022. What does that look like? You know, it looks very different across the the wide spectrum that is the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. But you know, we do we do have a kind of a heavy feature arm as we are trying to show the lives of people as as they're living their faith in 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 their workplace, in their homes. Um, in the in in public policy, like Jason Atkins was just talking about. Okay, now I have a question for you. Sure. There's a guy sitting behind me who is the is my boss director of. That's what I was gonna ask. There's a guy sitting behind me who's the director of communications for the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, and his name is Tom Halden. And I was gonna ask if he's your boss. He is my boss. Okay, I want to do something. I want to just see if we can do something incredible right now. <laughs> I want to just try something. Um, if you guys think that Maria Weering should get a raise, would you like make some noise now? Tom, this is my question. This will is you, not heavy-handed at will all. Will you pledge right now in front of all these people to give Maria Weering a raise, and how much? Yes. Yes! We did it! Drinks on Maria! Didn't, didn't say when, but... You didn't say when. That's a very good It'll point. It'll be a synodal prompt. That's right. I hope we'll that be listening true. together and journeying. <laughs> oh, man. Could we make a graphic for Get Maria... Like, could we make a crayon-drawing graphic for Get Maria a raise? I think that would be... That would be amazing. Okay, um, Hang on. we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. You're not it. What is your name, sir? Jim. Okay, and this episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored, as the last, like, 12 have been, by our friends at Seton Home Study School. And I just learned that your kids do Seton Home Study School. Correct. We've done it for 22 years. So what's the, what's the deal? So when we decided we wanted to do uh, homeschooling, we wanted a Catholic program and we wanted an accredited program because we w weren't sure how long we were going to do homeschooling and we wanted to be able to to take transcripts and say to a school, thou shalt accept this. And uh, and Seton was one of the, like the, I think, the two Catholic homeschool providers that we could find that were accredited. 
So that was really valuable to us. And what's been your experience? I think it's it's been it's been overall pretty good. My you know the kids you know we've kept we've kept at it. Um, we've occasionally thought about changing, but we've ne- we've stuck with it. My wife really likes the consistency of the program and such. Uh, we ordered the, our books for this upcoming year just a few weeks ago, and the, uh, it showed up at the door. Uh, you know, uh, I think about a week or so ago, and the kids uh, were like, hey, you know, and they dug into the books, and you know, my my daughter Mary started working on her math, and and uh, you know, you know, she's put it aside now because school hasn't really started yet. But you know, they, they get into it. Those the book arrival is a big thing. Friends, take it from Jim. Seton Home Study School is an accredited school helping parents uh, in their vocation as the primary educators of children. To find out whether Seton Home Study School is right for your family, check it out at seatonhome.org. Now back to our program. There's a guy that's li- that like walked over and is listening to us very intently, and he just seems cool. So, uh, um, Ed, interview this guy. I'm just I'm a I'm a fan as of today. I started listening to your podcast this morning. No, so. you only wait. Yeah. You started listening to our show this morning yes, and then we came yes. to your town? Uh, yes, I'm I'm visiting. I actually live in Rome and I leave tomorrow. And I, I worked for this one the best archdiocese in the, in the country. I, I used to work here. Um, but I, I did a short stint for Notre Dame and now I work for one Peter Five and also am a, I started a pilgrimage company. Uh, in Rome. So. Wow, what's yeah. your name? Vincenzo. Wow, there's a so. guy here named Vincenzo, and he <laughs> has a pilgrimage company, among many other things, and I, like, the truth, the truth is, I'm not going to ask him more questions about his pilgrimage company, because I feel like I'd be giving away free advertising, um, but Vincenzo, hey, I hope Seton, you'll, I great, hope you'll, great aver- company Seton, I hope right? you'll advertise your pilgrimage company. Oh, that'd be a great joy, yeah. <laughs> that'd be great. Well, there's a guy named Vincenzo here, he's really cool. Importantly, uh, he started listening to the podcast this morning. He started listening to the podcast this morning, and, and, we're, and we're in we, his town. We, we took the mic from that. No, but we're, no give it back. but we're here now, I want to just say, mostly for you. I mean, this is a giornamento. This is accompaniment. This Everybody is, make some noise for Vincenzo. You know, you listen to one episode, we come to your backyard. Okay, you should advertise in our thing. Um, do you guys want to play a game? Okay, Ed has made some games. I also made a game, but we're going to start with Ed's game. All right. And it, I believe these are, are, is this for me or is this an audience participation? Well, I mean, they can. I Actually, I would... Your your opinions on Minnesota are perhaps entertaining. We're going to play some Minnesota-related games. Yeah, they are all Minnesota-themed. Right and your opinions on Minnesota are perhaps entertaining, but they're not... I mean, Informed. they don't... I don't know anything about Yeah, exactly. So I'd be more interested in taking the temperature of the people in the good city of St. Paul about this. If you want to play greater or lesser, raise your hand, and Ed's going to pick you. You're the well, first person. First one I saw, yep. Yeah, come over here. Okay, so how this is going to work is very simple. I will give you three Minnesota items... And I would like you to rank them either in ascending order of greatness, if you think they're all great, or in descending order of terribleness, if you think they're all terrible. Okay. So X is greater than, is greater than, or X is lesser than, is lesser than. Okay. And for the prize, which I have no idea what it will be, but JD seems to think we have them. I heard it was t-shirts. Well, then it will be t-shirts then. I heard it was t-shirts. Yes, it will. I didn't get your name. That's incredibly I'm Anna. Anna, it is a delight to have you here. May I say you are already a much more coherent and engaging person to be speaking to than JD has been all evening. Hooray! And so I am very grateful to have you here. What everyone else here, your function is you will basically be exercising the veto function on whether or not she gets this correct. Whether she is representative of the city of St. Paul, you have to speak on behalf of the good city of St. Paul here. So first of all, native sons or daughters of Minnesota, can you rank in either ascending or descending order, please? Judy Garland, Bob Dylan, and Prince. Oh boy. Uh, Prince is number three. Uh, Judy Garland is number two, and Bob Dylan is number one. 
I am astonished. Sorry. That is exactly backwards to how I would have thought this was going to play. But you have everyone on your side here. I, All this right. Is, I 100% would have thought Prince would would win without even a second. Wow. Okay. I, I'm now going to need you to rank your most famous politicians from this oh state, boy. please. So, and again, I want to remind you, you don't have to imply endorsement. You can rank them in descending order if you decide they are all bad. Okay. So I need you to rank Walter Mondial, Jesse the Body Ventura, and Al Franken. Uh, at the bottom is Al Franken, mm-hmm. and then Walter Mondale, and then Jesse Ventura at the top. Yeah, that's okay. All right. I'll be honest. I'm pleased. I I thought Jesse would come out on top of that, so I'm I'm glad. I the terminology is tricky for me. We're we're getting that we're getting the essential information, and that's yeah. what matters here. Okay, so now this one is a little bit. I admit I have strong feelings on this one. Okay. And I feel that as a non-Minnesota, I'm allowed to have slightly strong feelings on this one because I need you to rank, please professional sports teams that used to and started playing in Minnesota and then fled the state to other locations where they have all gone on and I would say arguably done much worse since leaving. Okay. Which is probably karmic punishment. But So you can, again, rank them in order of how much you dislike them because they're all deserters or how much you like them for a nostalgia factor, whatever you prefer. But the Lakers, the North Stars, or the Moose... Okay, I feel like I need to take a lifeline on this one. You can phone a friend if you'd like. Because I don't follow sports, so... Yeah, absolutely. If you want to nominate someone to sub in... Say that again. Lakers, North Stars. So, Lakers is greater than... North Stars is greater than the Moose. Really? I'm surprised that there would be that level of affection for the Lakers here. I would have thought you'd all hate them as traitors. And like, they didn't even ditch the name when they left. Like, they still call themselves the Lakers in California, which is insanity. Okay, I mean, I I'll be honest with you. Even though you seem to have the sense of the room here, you're wrong. The Moose are, I would argue, the greatest sports team ever because the Minnesota Moose hockey jersey was the most beautiful uniform ever donned. Is there one you're not a fan of the old IHL Moose team? Like, yeah, they play in Utah now. I'm, I'm shocked. This is how much I love this state and this city is. I did my research on your minor independent league hockey teams before I came here. And I don't even like hockey. Okay, fine. All right, and finally, um, okay. these, are, these are important films that have been set in Minnesota. And so I need you to... Uh, the Mighty Ducks, obviously. Drop Dead Gorgeous. And Major League, back to the minors. Okay, so the Mighty Ducks is greater than Major League is greater than Drop Dead Gorgeous. You're not a fan of Drop Dead Gorgeous? I've never seen it, actually. Ah, okay. Does everyone more or less in agreement with that? I mean, the Mighty Ducks, fair enough. I I, I like Major League, back to the minors. I, Drop Dead Gorgeous is arguably a work of comic genius, but okay, if you guys really want that in third place, fair enough. I... Well, you've definitely won the t-shirt or whatever it else is JD brought in the trunk of our car because you you have clearly represented the feeling of the room here. But this is, and please stay as the representative here, I have a little game here that I did. I looked up on a national, very well-trafficked travel and holiday site, and it listed the top 25 tourist attractions or things to do in the state of Minnesota. And I would not have guessed any of them, apart from maybe one or two. 
And I am interested to know if I am just ignorant of Minnesota or if perhaps these are a little off the wall. So with yourself as the sort of public tribune here, can you all tell me what are the top five things to see or do in Minnesota? You have to repeat all this because you're. We have the largest, the world's largest ball of twine. That's a no. That didn't make the top five. Mall of America. Mall of America was unsurprisingly number one. Oh. I feel that's a, um, not a fair reflection on you guys. Um, cathedral. The Cathedral of St. Paul. The Cathedral in St. Paul is actually on the list of the top five destination events in the state. <laughs> it was number four. If you're, it's, Mall of America was number one, and St. Paul Cathedral is number four. Um, I'll give you two oh, more guesses collectively. Someone, someone said Split Rock Lighthouse. Mm, no. The Boundary Waters? Yes. Yes. You, you are quite right. Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Okay. Which, I'll be honest with you, is a Institute terrible name. If Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness Area, you can do better. If we'll, we'll do one more guess for the number five spot. The State Fair? It is not the State Fair. The State Fair made the top ten, but the number five thing is actually something called the North Shore Scenic Drive. Oh. Yeah, that seems very similar Look, to the Boundary I, I, Waters. That's not how attractionsofamerica.com are selling it, and that's really not my fault. Okay, so your prize, as terrible as this sounds, is whatever it is JD has in the back of his van. Thank you. Okay, so um, I have a game for a Minnesotan. If you want to play and you get a prize, raise your hand. He's wearing it's a, a Chicago shirt. He can, you don't. You don't have to be a Minnesotan to play this game, although it is inspired by Minnesota. Wait. All right. This, this guy is wearing a, a matching T-shirt to his wife, which is really beautiful. And uh, if you're listening to the show, his show, his shirt says, "I might believe in fairies." Uh, first of all, what's your name? Uh, my name is Aaron. Aaron. Okay. Nice to meet you, Aaron. And what do you do here in Minnesota? Uh, so. I'm not going to tell you what my occupation is. Um, I work, Aaron is I work a drug in, dealer. Yeah, right. I work in agriculture. Um, but there are different, like they're different, like farmer. I'm not a farmer. No. I didn't know there were other ones. That's okay. Okay, so Aaron, Aaron is an agricultural. I think he works in agriculture and is a drug dealer. Aaron grows pot, everybody, and let's give him a round of applause <laughs> for doing that for well, it's us. Soon like, to be legal in Minnesota. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. That is okay. a joke. I do not. Jason support Atkins that. is lobbying against this right now. Uh, this guy is a drug dealer. I support dealer. Jason Atkins lobbying. <laughs> but I, I, I host a show called I Might Believe in Fairies. That's why I'm wearing this oh, shirt. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, like a like a podcast? You yeah, have a podcast? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what is it? So this guy has a podcast called I Might Believe in, po in Fairies. You can get it wherever <laughs> I Might Believe in Podcasts. This guy has a podcast called I Might Believe in Fairies. You can get it wherever fine podcasts are got. I didn't know that when I picked him. But, like, what is that podcast all about? So it's about um, Catholic science fiction and fantasy authors as well, like uh, people like Tim Powers, Gene Wolfe. Um, it's not a Tolkien podcast because there are so many of those. It's but, not a Tolkien podcast. But um, my wife actually picked the name. My wife's name's Rachel, and I made her wear the shirt today, so we'd stick out. It worked. It honestly, <laughs> it worked. Okay, so this guy, his name is Aaron. He works in agriculture. He has a podcast called I Might Believe in Fairies. You can get it wherever fine podcasts are got. But we are not going to talk about fairies, Aaron, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we are in one of the 
Twin Cities, are we not? That's, that's as far as I'm aware, yes. And I believe they're called the Twin Cities because they're rough, they're e- roughly equal in size. Or, there are roughly two of them. They're, yeah, there are approximately two of them. And that's enough. So um, uh, I'm going to ask Aaron some... We're, what we're going to do is we're going to do some trivia about twins. Because we're in the Twin Cities, I'm going to ask Aaron questions about twins. And then I'm going to ask you who are in proximity to us. Before I tell him whether he's right or wrong, whether you think he's right or wrong. And if you get... A substantial number of the questions right. I'm going to give you uh, a T-shirt, but it's in the car. Sounds good. Okay, that sounds great. Okay, so um, the first one is easy because it's a practice. Aaron, this famous twin tricked his brother into giving up his birthright. Who is it? Um, I've had two beers, but... um, (laughs) It's in the Bible. Jacob. Jacob. Okay, Aaron says it's Jacob. This famous twin... Raise your... Make some noise if you think he's right. Does anybody think he's wrong? Okay, Jacob is right. Okay, you will get an extra point if you can say what Jacob gave his brother Esau for the birthright. Like, what did he give him? A a mess of pottage. A mess of pottage, that is correct. Give him a round of applause. (laughs) Neither of these twins, this is a sports question about twins. Do you like sports, Aaron? No. No, you have a podcast called (laughs) They Might Believe in Fairies. You don't like sports. (laughs) I am as far from a sports fan as you can get. Okay, but the audience can help you. You can ask the audience if you want. Neither of these twins played for the Minnesota Vikings, but... Growing up, they did play football for the Cave Springs Vikings Pop Warner football team. So these twins did not play for the Minnesota Vikings, but they did play. They were Vikings. Growing up, they played football in Virginia for the Cave Spring Vikings Pop Warner team. Who? What twins are they? <laughs> Anybody? No idea. Save Aaron. Tom Help said. No, he doesn't know. No clue. Father Headman, th- Jim. Is this oh. something normal people know? This is no. <laughs> No. Oh, the Minnesota Twins play baseball? No, Vikings. They played for the Vikings, right? Neither of these twins played for the Vikings. Twins, they played football. That's the clue. Are they from Minnesota? They're not from Minnesota. <laughs> the Barbers! Tom Halden saved you! Tiki and Tunt Rondé Barber, he saved you! Well done, Aaron. I was going to say that, but... Everybody give Aaron a round of applause for that one. That was amazing. You can have... I'll bring... Maybe you can have one. I don't know. Okay. Aaron. This is another sports question. You want to skip it? You get one skip. No, it's fine. Let's do it. Okay, this Dutch-American pitcher. This Dutch-American pitcher is one of the of Minnesota's most famous twins. This Dutch-American pitcher. This guy knows. Aaron, do you want to phone a friend? It's that guy. Do you know it, Rob? Bert Blylevel. Bert Blylevel it is! <laughs> well done, guy at the end of the table. Bert the Dutchman Blylevel, one of the most famous Minnesota Twins pitchers in history. Okay, Aaron, I think this one is going to be much more your speed. I'm pretty confident. Remus and Romulus famously suckled at the teats. Can I say teats? Am I allowed to say teats? Remus and Remus famously suckled at the teats of this animal. A wolf. Okay, a wolf. I would have also accepted a she-wolf, which is a kind of a wolf. Well, you would assume a she, a wolf, a wolf that has teats is a she-wolf. A wolf that has teats is a she-wolf. We are not afraid to say that on this show. Um, if we are canceled for affirming that she-wolves have teats, I am going to live with that. Okay. Um, now here's a bonus question. Before Romulus founded the city of Rome, Remus was held prisoner in what nearby ancient city? Oh, Carthage. I don't know. Carthage was is neither nearby nor the answer. Well, the Romans were always the going. Romans were always Carthage. going to Carthage, but the answer to this one was Alba Longa. Yeah, All this right. guy knew. He's like, oh, I was about to say Alba Longa. Is that true? <laughs> oh, Lars. Po- Lars. Well, where were you? Ulrich was the game. Yeah, this. <laughs> said a lot of people are Monday morning quarterbacks in this one. Okay, these twin billionaires have a rock band. 
they may or may not have invented Facebook. Who are these twins? Oh, uh, the Winklevoss the twins. The Winklevoss twins, that's correct. Everybody give them a round of applause. <laughs> okay. This beer had an unseemly early 2000s commercial that was actually really disgusting involving twins. What was it? Budweiser? Mm. Coors Light. It was Coors Light. Aaron. Coors Light. Come on. Oh, come on. Okay. okay. I don't watch unsavory commercials, J.D. Father Quinn. Paul's like, come on. Did you remember that weird commercial with the twins? Jim knows it. <laughs> okay. We all know, Aaron, that the 1988 buddy comedy twins starred Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger as twin brothers separated at birth. But this is super interesting, everybody. What actor was announced in 2018 as the third brother who was going to co-star in a sequel called Triplets? What actor was going to be cast as the third brother in a sequel to Twins called Triplets? Well, it comes Don't look at my paper. Well, it comes down to identifying who looks like both Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Because they look so similar. If you get this right, I'm going to give you a lot of prizes. I'm going to be so proud. <laughs> I'm going to say The Rock. Mm. Oh, so close. It was Eddie Murphy. What? Yeah, it was Eddie Murphy. <laughs> now, here's where th this was a real movie that in 2018, the Arnold announced. He said, we're making a sequel. Our third twin will be Eddie Murphy. Everyone was too embarrassed to ask any questions. They didn't want to appear to be making any sort of judgments. So they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. We get it. Um, but then... Uh, Eddie dropped off the project, and so in 2021, it was announced that Triplets was going to start filming in January 2022 with what actor as the third brother? Kevin Hart. Mm. Not Kevin Hart. <laughs> Not Kevin Hart, but Tracy Morgan. Tracy. Oh. Tracy Morgan. Here's the bad news. The director died, you guys, in February, so <laughs> nobody knows what's happening with the project. I want to see this movie so bad, and nobody knows what's happening with this project. Okay, but Aaron, you were close, kind of. Okay, this apostle was known as the twin. Thomas. Call a phone a friend and make it the guy in the car. Thomas? Thomas. Say Thomas. Father Paul Hedman, why? I'm going to give him the microphone for one minute. What, what is one popular theory about why Thomas the Apostle was nicknamed the twin, Father Paul Edmund or Jim? This guy went to my alma mater, the Franciscan University. Two Philly theories. University. Two theories. One is, is that he actually looked like Jesus and was referencing being, him looking like, you know. In that, that is one theory, that Thomas the Apostle looked like Jesus. But what was the other theory? The Jim? other theory references uh, the fact that John's gospel mirrors Genesis in many different ways. And so Thomas is being a reference to Jacob and Esau oh, in really? that regard. really? That's super and so interesting. That in the, and Jacob's journey is also is paralleled in John's gospel. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. There's actually three theories. Father Paul Hedman knows the third. I believe the third is... I, I can't say it. Here comes Elsa. Let it go, Elsa. Wasn't he missing a testicle or The something? third theory is that Thomas the Apostle was missing a testicle and his nickname, the twin, was a tongue-in-cheek mockery of that <laughs> sad, sad affliction. <laughs> Give that lady a... Buy that lady a drink. Okay. Well done, Aaron. Okay. Uh, this is sort of the poor man's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I mean, you can't get The Rock for a movie you call this guy. Um, he's a so-so actor. He's uh, probably been in some car movies, and he has a twin brother named Paul. Who is this twin? Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel it is! Yeah. With no hesitation at all. How do you do that? You said knockoff Rock Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah, I did say knockoff Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And then you said cars. I'm like, oh, yeah, Vin Diesel, obviously. Wow. This, so one thing uh, about I Might Believe in Fairies is you probably thought it was just about, like, books, but actually it's mostly about Fast and Furious. So wherever fine podcasts are That's found, right. you Little get known this fact. Thing. Okay, so uh, here's your final question. It's a religious question because this is a religious show, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, these scientists are the patron saints of twins. Sorry, it's not Cosmos and Damien. Cosmos and Damien it is! Give this man a huge round of applause! Aaron, they, what's your last 
Nathan? Erber. Aaron, they might be fairies, Erber. Amazing <laughs> job. Well done. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Ed, where are you? Who wants to play Ed for the end of the show? You've been jonesing to get on the show. What's your name? Will. Will? Okay. Ed went to have a cigarette. We're outside, so I don't really understand that. But Ed went somewhere else to have a cigarette. So, Will, you're going to play Ed. Uh, so, Ed, sure. any uh, final thoughts for the end of this show? Uh, well, no, J.D. All I've got to say is that uh, <laughs> it's been far too long since I had my last smoke. So, um, <laughs> I think I'm going to do that now. And thank you very much, everyone. It's been a very pleasant Ed, night. Ed, you're English, aren't you? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> You've been listening to a live episode of the Pillar Podcast from Skinner's Pub in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Thank you, St. Paul, Minneapolis, for being with us. All right. I'm ending the show. Oh, the real Ed's coming back. Ed, what I did, because you were gone, is I just had this guy, his name is Will, he played you for the end of the show. I'm sure sure you did great. Let's see. Let's do a comparison. Uh, Well, Ed, uh, you're English, aren't you? Uh, no. Oh, you got it. Okay. I have Will a, got it wrong. I have a British passport, but I can't claim to be okay, English. Okay, I wasn't fine. born Nobody, in England. Okay, fine. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was probably brought to you by Seton Home Study, <laughs> which is a fantastic... We genuinely like those guys We a lot. do genuinely like yeah. them a lot. Uh, Seton Home Study, which is an accredited Catholic distance learning school. You can use it for homeschooling. They have a fantastic textbook selection. They incorporate every aspect of the faith into every aspect of the curriculum. And you can find out more at seatonhome.org. That's right. To find out whether Seton Home Study School is right for your family, check it out at seatonhome.org. At the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by the good people of St. Paul, Minnesota, and by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. I can't believe that worked. That was, I can't believe that worked. Okay, one thing is I did actually forget to press the record, so we are... <laughs>